how can you send me a letter when I'm three or four months pregnant telling me that I'm bad for you? You're the drug addict and alcoholic. <laughs> I'm just codependent. I'm not easy to live with. And and like I said, there are so many things that she's better at that I'm not. And she, even though it's not always comfortable and always easy, she always, what she does is she allows me to be me. Take a girl and a guy and they fall madly in love and form a family. Sprinkle in some counseling degrees and a doctorate. A dream of transforming relationships as we know it. And 20 years later, we give you power couple Dr. Ray and Jean Ketkodian. And this is their podcast, Couples Synergy. Welcome back to another episode of Couples Synergy with Dr. Ray and Jean. I'm Dr. Ray. And I'm Jean. And this is our podcast about love, marriage, and relationships. Be sure to check us out online on our Facebook page and Instagram at Couples Synergy or our website, couplesynergy.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast or send us any suggestions on topics you'd like to hear more about. And now on to Couples Synergy, an in-depth look at love, marriage, and relationships, where we bring you our experience helping thousands of couples transform their relationships for nearly 20 years. You know, every day we get to hear intimate details about a couple's celebrations, disappointments, and everyday challenges. We've often wished these stories were shared because we know we are more similar than different. So we've created not only an avenue where you can hear about people's intimate lives, but an atmosphere where people come over to our home pub, pour a drink, and share their stories. People like today's guests, Pastor Mark and Lisa Lashbrook, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you for having thank us. Thank you for trekking out in the snow yeah. tonight. And today in Chicago has been snowing. So uh, we did a podcast earlier today and I'm glad everyone made it here yeah. safely <laughs> and made it home safe. <laughs> and will make it home safely, right? Yeah. So before we get to your story, why don't you guys tell us a little bit about yourselves? How old are you and what do you do for a living? I am 51 years old and I have five children, two in-law, a daughter-in-law, son-in-law, and two grandchildren, a two-year-old and a 10-week-old. And yes, so fun. And I have a photography business. What's the name of your business? Purple Feathers Photography. And where is that located? In Crystal Lake. And I work with the church, teach Sunday school, do praise singing, and do ladies ministry. Awesome. Welcome. Thank you. I'm 54 years old. And I pastor First Apostolic Church of Algonquin. My wife does most of the work. I just get to get up and (laughs) (laughs) sermonize. Also, uh, we just got the church started about five years ago. So I'm working for the United States Postal Service is my day job. It's pretty simple as that. Just we, we work for the church and I work for the U.S. government and that's a dangerous combination. I guess. <laughs> church and state. <laughs> Separation of church and state, right? <laughs> Can you guys tell us the story of how you met? Well, we actually met at church. I grew up in Wichita, Kansas, and I had gone to church most of my life. And my husband, Mark, he had not. And when he came to church, that's where we met. We met at a church service. And how old were you? I was 20. No, (laughs) I wasn't 20. I think you were 17 or 18. I was 20. Mm, Okay. It's amazing how (laughs) things change when. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Okay. So tell me how old I was. (laughs) (laughs) 
So in, in Kansas, you guys met? Yes, mm-hmm. we okay. met in Kansas. He had just come from Iowa to live with his brother. He had found his life at a, I don't want to tell your story. Oh, at you a, want me to tell my story? Oh, you can tell your story. <laughs> I, was just, I, was, I thought I was here just to look good. <laughs> well, this is too. audio. <laughs> I was not raised in church of any type. You know, we, my mother went to church every Sunday and she would force us as much as possible, but that was not something that was important to me. And just to make a long story short, I was 20 years old and uh, I had a pretty solid alcohol and drug addiction that was leading me to serious depression and suicidal thoughts. And my brother my older brother had moved to Wichita, Kansas and gotten involved with the church there. I would just look at his life and look at my life and thought, you know what? He seems like the happiest person I know. So I called him up one night in the middle of the, it was December and said, can I come move in with you? Because what I'm doing here is killing me. And so that's what happened is I flew down to Wichita, Kansas and started going to church down there and, and met Lisa and swept her off her feet. Right off my feet. Tell us about that. You can tell about your first impressions of me if you'd like. Well, I don't know. My first impressions, well, we were all excited to to see Dane's brother come because Dane was so handsome. <laughs> and his single brother was coming, so... All of us girls, we were excited about that. And when he came in, he had a very long spirally perm and spirally I, perm. It was eighties. Oh, it was a Jerry curl. Just say yes. it was a Jerry curl. Well, I didn't. I don't know wow. what it was. But <laughs> <laughs> he came in and I said, "Oh, he looks like a poodle. <laughs> Who is that?" <laughs> but the next service, when he came in, he had to cut it all off, and you could see his face and. Look totally different. So, and he asked me out on a date, and the first the first time he asked me out, I I wasn't sure. So I had I said I had already been asked out that night after service. So <laughs> she already <laughs> had alternate plans. I need to tell these stories because she leaves out a lot of details. Oh. <laughs> well, that's the story. I, I said maybe next time. So we made contact or came in contact with one another and she kind of did the thumb finger to the thing like call me type of deal oh no not at all (laughs) (laughs) you're making a wreck of this her dance card was already full apparently (laughs) well she had made it appear that she'd be interested in us getting to know each other better so when she walked out of the room i thought what are you doing you know go ask her out so i felt emboldened and I went out and asked her, and then she shot me down so she already had plans for the night. <laughs> so she set me up and knocked me down, which was pretty good first training for how our marriage has been ever since then. What? <laughs> you know, that's an interesting that thing. That is very We see that. Yeah. So then what happened? Well, then we started dating. We We went out. I think we had biscuits and gravy after service one night at... What was that place? I don't even remember don't that. Remember so. that you, you penciled we went, him in. Yes, yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so we started to date and we dated for almost a year. And what was it about each other that you fell in love with? 
Her um, hair and her dimples. My hair and my dimples. I just can't get away from that. I'm like, what? <laughs> I've thought about this many times. Oh, okay. You didn't have um, poodle hair just, at the time, did you? No. Okay. Oh, no. No. Okay. Just fell in love with, I don't know, he was just handsome and a lot of fun to be with and just seemed really mature. And I loved the fact that he was so done with drugs and alcohol and wanted something more. I love that because, you know, when you grow up in a church and it's, and it was a, you know, a very conservative church and very conservative setting. And it seemed like a lot of young people were just waiting to see how close to the edge they could get and where, how far could they go and what is out there. But he already knew and he was just done with it. He said, I'm done with that. I love God. He's given me peace and joy and happiness. And everything I ever did out there couldn't compare to what I have now. And that felt secure and very attractive. You know, that, mm-hmm. you know, you always want, well, I mean, when you're raised in the church, you're taught you want someone that loves God more than they love you. And that keeps you safe. And, and what was, kind of denomination, I'm sorry, what kind of den- denomination were you guys brought up in as far as the church? It's a Pentecostal denomination. Okay. That was for me since I was eight years old, but he wasn't raised in it. So you were raised in, in another type of denomination? Yeah, which I don't know if I will name because I don't want anybody to think that I'm trying to compare you know, oh, one to the other. Right, but, right. But it wasn't a very solid, you know, my mother made us all go to church every week. But other than that, there wasn't a whole lot of, you know, it wasn't a home necessarily mm-hmm. centered around that. Uh, you know, I had a good upbringing and my family were all great people, but it wasn't really a kind of a God-centered situation, if, if that makes sense. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences with drugs and alcohol and what you would say to a young person who is struggling with something like that? There's so much to say, and I, I still deal with so many people in, in this area. Matter of fact, last June was 30 years since I've had any type of drugs or alcohol. I don't know how else to say it other than it, it's not worth it. You know, it always starts out or usually starts out where it's fun, it's exciting, it's interesting, it's kind of taboo. You know, there's a lot of things that go into all of that. Primarily, you know, it, it always ends the same way. And I had gone to, I've lost count, I think four and a half drug treatment or four drunk treatment centers. And one of them was four and a half months of inpatient treatment. And one thing I noticed is that some of the drugs that are prevalent nowadays, like methamphetamines, I know Heroin's making a comeback, but mm-hmm. methamphetamines in, in the 80s when I had most of my struggles was crack, that there's not a there's not a great life expectancy in that. You know, I would be in treatment centers with alcoholics that would say, I've been drinking for 40 years and I've lost everything. And sitting right next to him was a 19-year-old kid that said, I smoked crack for the first time three months ago and I've lost everything. And and they were physically in worse condition than people had been drinking for 40 years. So I guess just the idea that, you know, just say no seems very simplistic, but there's no future in it. 
it's a waste of time and money and the damage it costs. I mean, and there's a great future outside of it. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So how long did you guys date before you got engaged? That's a different sort of story. It didn't happen like that. Oh, we actually dated for less than a year and then we broke up. Uh, The relationship was just, it was crazy. And we, neither one of us could make it work or he began working with my brother and my brother was, you know, into drugs a little and whatever. And it wasn't very long that he fell back into it and was not going to church. And I think the beginning of all of that is when we decided that we would go our separate ways because I wasn't interested in drugs or alcohol. I'd seen what it had done to my sister and her life and all of the trauma from growing up and watching my older sister ruin her life. And I knew I didn't want any part of that. So we stopped dating. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, you were more into drugs and stuff at that time than ever before that it had become really much more prevalent. Yes. Mm -hmm. Really much more prevalent DUIs and different things and a little bit of jail time. And, and it's funny because we reconnected again at a church service. Again, I had heard somehow well, while we were broke up, it's a very long story. I don't know if we have time for all of that. Uh, or... We got plenty of time. Okay. So, <laughs> so during the time that we were, we broke up, we kind of reconnected again. And I had strayed. I wasn't, you know, living the life that I knew I should be living. And I didn't know which direction I was going. I was a very confused girl, but I knew that I loved him and I knew what I seen him as a Christian be, and I always wished that he would let go of that and come back. And so we met up again at a church service again. I just happened to go, hadn't been in a while, and he just happened to be there. And we reconnected, and that began a very, very interesting ride of him doing some jail time and then possibility of violating a parole and prison time and a lot of crazy now things happened. Bumpy road, right? <laughs> really but bumpy road. And the, think. The, okay. I'm sorry to interrupt, but the first time you know that I started, you know, drinking and smoking marijuana as a, a fairly young person, and I got to that point where I, I was ready to for a change and moved in with my brother. The second time, there was no room for escalation. It, you know, it was like I didn't have five or six years. You know, I I jumped right back in from where I had left mm-hmm. off, and so the the progression of the of the disease, if you want to say it that way, and the consequences there were much more immediate, and so exponential, exactly, yeah. because I wasn't like learning and experimenting. I jumped just headlong back into it, so. Yeah, there was the drug treatment centers and DUIs. and What brought you back to the church and a different life? You know, what really happened is we reconnected while I was 
like she said, neither one of us were really pursuing our relationship with God at that point. I knew where I should be. You know, I never got into a denial of, well, that was all hogwash and, and this God, but, you know, I knew what I had known previously. It was just the addiction and, and my choices. I was just doing the alternate of what, like Lisa said, what I knew I should be doing. And so I ended up going to that four and a half month inpatient treatment center. And we had been seeing each other for a short while previous to that. And so she was stayed connected through mail primarily and phone call. Well, I didn't really get me. It was a very intensive behavioral modification type of drug treatment center. Not anything like if I told you the stories, I don't, I don't think they even allow that stuff anymore, but, <laughs> but they, you know, I didn't get it, even get to have a visit with her. I think for the first two months, there was no pat. I think I had been there over three months before I got a four hour pass for Thanksgiving to go. I went to Thanksgiving at her house and I don't want to get into too much detail, but it was, we connected at that point. Somewhere along the line, there was a breakthrough and people asked me about this. I don't know how it was just like a light clicked on. And, and I think it was, I think it was God because so many people I see that are smarter than me and, you know, didn't go as far as I went into the addictions spiral, never make it back. You know, so I, I, I don't I have a hard time taking credit that all of a sudden I just had this epiphany, but it really was a breakdown in the denial system mm. where I realized that the alcohol and the drugs were really the cause because everything was always about, well, if so-and-so had minded their business and got not called the police and if so, you know, if this hadn't happened and there was always a reason why it wasn't the drugs and alcohol and that's typical addict behavior is trying to figure out how to hold on to your addiction. Blame everyone else. You know, this addiction is your best friend. It's the love of your life and everything else is the problem. Mm -hmm. I finally had that epiphany that I was going to have to quit. Really, you know, that I had never been that person that could just have a drink, just a, you know, I'm going to chill out at the end of the night and have a little nightcap before I go to bed. I was never that person that just said, well, I'm just going to smoke a joint just to kind of calm down or I'm going to do a line of coke because I need to stay awake and finish a project. I was never that person. And so it really just finally clicked with me that it was all or nothing. It always had been. And so we, believe it or not, you know, honestly, and you can stop me if I, they can edit this, but so I was released from the treatment center and it was all court ordered. If you, if you failed or if they felt like you weren't really trying to work the program, you went back to prison. They just called the sheriff. The sheriff picked you up and you went back. How old were you at this time? Well, it was 1980, 1988, 1989. So 24, something like that. Are you, are you glad that that was how they handled it? You know, I am because if they had just violated my parole, you know, and, and I'm, I'm grateful that the judge saw what he saw, you know, uh, so back, you got real help instead of just incarceration. And exactly. back back then, to just go into the history a little bit, there were federal lawsuits pending with this in within the state of Kansas over prison overcrowding. The penitentiary that I went to was built to hold eight hundred people, and when I got there, there was nineteen hundred. Wow. wow! And so during the process, and and again, I think that this was all orchestrated by the hand of God. But when I arrived in the prison system, 
there was a federal judge that had passed down a ruling that they need to reduce their prison population by a certain percentage point. And therefore, they had to go and review all the cases, and they tried to find, obviously, the least violent and the least repeat threats that there were. And I ended up being one of those because all of my issues had always been, you know, DUIs and then a drug conviction. So I was never assault, no battery, no any, you know, Mm -hmm. anything like that. So the judge sentenced me rather than to, or so when I violated that, you know, I, I got released on that because of that court order. And then within a month I had a DUI when I was went to the sentencing for the DUI. This is just the kind of person I was. I was drunk. I drank it. I drank it. 12 pack of beer on the way to the sentencing. It was like an hour and a half away because mm-hmm. I was driving on the highway and I was drunk when I showed up for the sentencing and the judge sentenced me to this treatment center. So yeah, you know, if they'd have just done what they normally do and say, well, now you're going to go back and finish your sentence, you know, I'd have probably come out the same person or worse than I had been. Mm-hmm. So it, it was, it was a, a merciful act for sure. So I was released. We had been seeing each other and. Shortly thereafter, she was expecting with our first child, and we weren't married. What was that like for you? Terrifying. It was very scary. I remember it was New Year's Eve when I called him, and he was at the halfway house in Kansas City and asked him when he was going to come and visit again because I knew I was pregnant, and I needed to tell him. And... He came for a visit, I think, the next weekend or something, and we confirmed the pregnancy. And I remember there's so much to this story. There's so many layers and layers Mm -hmm. and layers and layers. The way I was raised, a very dysfunctional home, very traumatizing childhood, and I was not healthy myself, obviously. You know, I I knew that I seen glimpses and shades of a real man of God when he first came to church and gave his life to God. But, you know, it was part of my dysfunction that I clung to someone that was destroying their life like that. It looks familiar. Yeah. So um, it was very terrifying, very scary. And I remember at one point, he, um, I was about three or four months along, and he sent me a letter saying that our relationship was going to compromise his recovery and that we probably needed to go our separate ways. And, you know, and I, I was like, Oh my goodness, what am I going to do? What does this mean? You know? (laughs) So I started going to Al-Anon and reading material and trying to figure out what was wrong with me, you know, because I didn't want to be the bad part of the relationship or, you know, bring, more chaos to his world that he was already trying to recover and build from the ground up, literally. And we both worked a program. We tried really hard. And and the more I worked on myself and the more he worked on himself and we, you know, we knew we wanted to be together, but we didn't get married until the baby was about three months old. Was that hard for you from a moral perspective? Yes. I share the same experience. And, and yeah. it takes a while to forgive yourself. It does. Yeah. It does. 
to forgive yourself, to forgive him, to forgive, you know, the whole, I mean, there's, like I said, layers to it, to, Mm -hmm. you know, so much there. I mean, we could talk all night (laughs) about it. How can you send me a letter when I'm three or four months pregnant telling me that I'm bad for you? (laughs) You're the drug addict and alcoholic. I'm just codependent. (laughs) That's a really tough position to be in, you know, because we see people struggle with their recovery and relationships are the biggest trigger to relapse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, AA preaches that for the first year, no major changes. Right. 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 and, And from my point of view, you know, I had come to that realization, you know, that I had to be sober above all else. And I wasn't trying to be cruel and I wasn't trying to be selfish. Yeah, I mean, I guess I was trying to be selfish to a certain because I had made my own life miserable all by myself. And part of me was terrified not only that I would it would derail my recovery, but I didn't have a lot of confidence that I was going to recover. You know, I was determined to, but I didn't have confidence in it. I had only been in the halfway house for like a month and a half or whatever it was at that point in time. So I hadn't even gotten out in the real world and found out if I could even make it work. And so I was really terrified that I would just make that my mess would become Lisa's mess again. And then the child's mess on top of that. And so I'd like to sound noble, but it it wasn't really about being noble. It was just not trusting myself and feeling like, you know what, they'd be better off without me if I don't succeed at what I'm trying to do. And and that's what, and I thought that at that point in time was the time to do that rather than drag the both of them through whatever else was I was headed for if I didn't succeed with the recovery. And so it wasn't that I didn't love her and that I didn't want to be with her. I just had, I had my own fear that I was going to make their lives as miserable as I had made my own life. And I didn't want to add to everybody's misery. So how do you get to from, I need to focus on myself and my sobriety. You have to figure out how to have a child alone to we got married. Well, I was living with my mom. So, and he was in Kansas city. So we, we were about three, three and a half hours away from each other in the first place. So, you know, and this is before cell phones and texting and all of that. So I just worked because, you know, I knew I needed to buy baby things. He wasn't going to be able to do that. He was barely going to make it. He thought, I always had, I always thought he can do this. He can do this. He did it before with the help and the power of God. He can do it again. And that was hard for me to say, what? Really? You, you don't did have you faith ever, in yourself? Did you ever consider either adoption or abortion? No. So getting married, right? Getting married was interesting because I was living with my mom who was very dysfunctional. And she, I almost lost my baby when my sister came to the hospital and said, Lisa, I'm really scared for you because mom said that the only reason why you have a baby is because it's supposed to be her baby. And that's just a very, very 
tiny taste of the way I was raised and what type of situation I was raised in. My mom passed away eight years ago, so she's no longer with us. And she happened to say this in front of a nurse who then got in touch with a social worker and said, something's not right with this home situation. So I, he was there for a couple of days after the baby was born. So happy. We, our relationship did, we did start, you know, trying to blend and make it work throughout the pregnancy and became closer and trying to be more healthy, both of us mentally, emotionally and spiritually and everything but still so many layers of problems. So I said, hey, I'm going to have to go somewhere. And I know you're not ready to be a husband and a dad, but I'm looking at a very dangerous situation for our baby and for myself. And he was like, well, just just come and live with me. So she was 14 days old, and I moved out of my mom's house for the first time in my life. I was 22, and... I was it was the first time I ever remember my mother telling me she loved me and she kissed me on the cheek was the day that I was leaving. Twenty two years old and a fourteen day old baby. Wow. And I went to live with him and you know, just kept talking to him and telling him this this is not what I want for my life. You know, I don't want to just live with somebody. I I want a family. I want to be married. I want to, you know, we need to make this right because of my upbringing. You know, I knew what the right thing to do was. And, you know, so many people, especially these days, you know, they don't really agree with that, but but I knew what was right for me. And so when she was three months old, we had a little tiny ceremony. Actually, the church that ran the AA meetings that he went to, the pastor there married us <laughs> on a Sunday afternoon. So we weren't, we still weren't back to attending a church of any no. type. And, and I don't remember how it all worked out, but I sent her the letter, you know, saying, look, we'd be better off separating. That wasn't what was in my heart for our relationship, but that was, like I said, that was my fear for the, what would happen. And so as time went on and I was court ordered, obviously, to the halfway house. So as time went on and I gained a little more confidence, the relationship continued on the communication. You know, I had a very solid home life. You know, my mother was a homemaker and my dad went to work every day. And my dad was one of the most down to earth men's men kind of guys. And so I can't say it was anything spiritual or it, it was just something that in my mind that's just how families worked was that the father provided for the family. so at, at some point in time I got to where I had enough I got ended up having a job and things where I felt like okay you know we're in this situation and I need to step up especially when she did call me and tell me about that conversation her mother had and and all of those things and I was like you know what I'm going to have to step up and, and be a man, you know, here I am and do the thing, do this. And so I kind of worked through my fears, not that they were gone, but I'd finally just got up the courage to say, I got to give this a shot. And well, you had a good AA sponsor. Yeah. I did. And you were going to lots of meetings and I was going to meetings. And I mean, the, you know, the having a sponsor myself saying, listen, if he's telling you he has to walk away, because 
he can't stay sober and stay with you, you have to let him go because you want him to be sober, even if it means you're not with him. And, you know, coming to that realization was really hard. But so I backed off from him as well and said, you know, I'm here and I'm having this baby and we want you, but, you know, let me know. And he started to reach out and call and talk and, you know, and that's how I ended up there after two weeks of her being in our lives. And then when she was three months old, we got married and just decided, you know, we're here. It's either going to work or it's not. So let's just do this. But And this was 20 years ago? 29. 29. Years ago. 29 years ago. 29. Oh. Yes. You asked about what brought us back mm-hmm. to God or to church or whatever. I want to tell that. Okay. Go ahead. Can because I feel like it was all about me. Okay. Can you um, remember? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I do want to say, though, also, you know, I had my trepidations and my fears and all that, but she called me when her water broke and said, My water broke. I'm going to the hospital. So I dropped everything. Drove down to Wichita, and when our daughter was born, the first time I held her, it was overwhelming. And most people listening on this, I'm assuming, have had children, whatever. But all of a sudden, I felt I don't, I don't even know how you know just the love and the responsibility and the I don't know if I'll ever be able to let this child go. And and it just settled like concrete in my mind that I'm going to make this happen and i didn't sleep for three days i was so excited and uh, without drugs and alcohol that's right (laughs) (laughs) but so you know decided we're going to make this work and so she did move up and and uh we were married were you here in chicago by that time in kansas city you're in kansas city okay and then you're in wichita yeah got it i got quartered in kansas city that was also part of the the treatment was that they didn't, once they released you, they didn't send you back to where you had gotten mm-hmm. in all your trouble. They felt you had a better chance of survival in a new environment. So, mm-hmm. so I guess it was, I don't know. So three, it was about nine months old. Three, six months or so after we had gotten married and I had a job and, and it was a decent job. You know, it provided for us and we weren't living high on the hog. We had a very tiny apartment in a rough part of Kansas City, but it, it, we were making it work. It was happening. I remember I was driving home from work one afternoon. The sun was setting, and I was driving on the interstate, and I looked, and I was watching the sunset, and it was just beautiful. And there was just something in, in my mind or in my heart and I that just kind of struck me. And I, and I said, you know what, God, you've been so good to me. You know, that I've gotten this far in my recovery and that I, I, I didn't die. You know, you know, there's m- multiple things that obviously haven't been discussed about the drug addiction, but I've been thrown from cars. I've driven motorcycles off interstates at 120 miles an hour. I've been stabbed three separate times, you know, no reason to be alive, you know, and I just was thinking, I can't believe God that even though I have totally abandoned you and and ignored everything that I know to be right and to be true, that you're still putting these pieces back together and you're still showing me mercy and you're still showing me grace. And, and it just, I just thought to myself, you know, how much better would it be if I actually turned back 
and our family could actually go back to following the principles of the Bible and follow, you know, following after and pursuing that relationship with God, you know, and, and so I came home and, and the way I remember it is, is I just, I brought it up to her. I just mentioned it to her, what I had been thinking on that drive home. And you can take over from there because I don't remember the rest very well. Well, you did come home and you talked about that. And we actually went back to Wichita for a visit and happened to go to the church where we met and had our baby with us. And of course, the pastor that was there that, you know, raised me said, where are you going to church? And we said, nowhere. And he said, all right, well, I have a friend that's a pastor in Kansas City. I want you to go to his church. Just go visit. And so we came, we went home and I think it was a few months later, we said, hey, we need to do that because he said we should do that. So we looked up the church and we went to it and it was probably the one of the best decisions we ever made because that pastor took us this broken, dysfunctional, lost, scared couple with a little girl, and he invested in us, and he taught us, and he was patient and kind, and he he showed us Jesus and changed everything. Always thought, that's what I want. I want to break the cycle. I don't want this for my marriage or for my family or my kids. My, I was the youngest of 10 kids. My mom was married five times and it was a crazy life. Chaos. Chaos mm-hmm. is, it's an understatement. Literally, if I told you all the things that happened while I was growing up, it, it's unbelievable. I had to address some of problems like my dad left when I was eight years old and he never came back. And, you know, just telling me, you know what, Lisa, you have a problem with God as your father because of your father. Well, you know, who would have thought of that? Who would, you know, how does that connect? But it does. You have to be reprogrammed as a person. You have to, you know, learn different ways of handling all of this. That's the exact premise that we work with with people. Mm -hmm. We see it much more developmental than pathological. And, you know, you see it a lot now with smoking commercials. It's like, I know you tried and you failed, but keep trying. It's the keep trying and it's very difficult for human beings to change one and done, you know. And it is a a bumpier road than that. And I think that's another important thing for people that are out there struggling with any type of addiction that keep working at it. Keep working at it. Mm -hmm. Don't give up. If you fall, get back up. It's it's a new day. And I think one important thing you're hitting on also is find the right guidance. Exactly. Right. You can't do it on your own. You can't. Right. And so, you know, you have to find people who specify and have the knowledge to be able to, you know, guide you in the right way. And it sounds like that's what this church and this community was able to provide the two of you and start to kind of settle the chaos in your lives. And they also were very supportive that the 12 step program Mm-hmm. And that was very rare for even 18, 20 years ago mm-hmm. right. that the uh, church would embrace that. But they were very supportive of it. It was miraculous, to say the least. He attended Bible college and graduated with a whole group of preachers. But he was valedictorian, just knew that he felt like God wanted him to be in ministry. And it was actually about three months before his open heart surgery where he had his stroke. And the one thing that kept me 
during that was every time the surgeon, the doctor would come and talk to me and she'd say, you know, he can't stay in ICU. He can't stay intubated. It's not safe. He's going to get infections. His hands begin to draw up. His feet fell. He would just shake violently. And no matter what they did, there was no response. And she would say, we need to put a trach in and we need to remove him. We need to move him to a rehab center for long-term care. And I would say, you can't put a trach in. He's going to hate that when he preaches. <sighs> and she would tell me, he's never going to preach. He's never going to wake up from this. There's nothing mm -hmm. left. Did you have any experience during that time spiritually? I wouldn't say that during the coma that I had a spiritual experience. I get asked that a lot, and I mm -hmm. wish I could come up with something really profound. But <laughs> walking into the surgery, there was a lot of fear. But the fear was around me. But when he did call, you know, and he put it on my heart to actually to become, for lack of a better word, a preacher. It was just, like she said, it was just a few months before. And so, and I walked into that surgery without any fear whatsoever because I knew that God would not call me to something that he would not allow me to fulfill. During the coma, there were very few times that I was, I guess for lack of a better word, lucid or cognizant. You know, I never came out of the coma. They were continually trying to have give me any type of response whatsoever. And I remember specifically coming into consciousness just long enough for just, it was just seconds on, I think it was three different occasions. And one was I could hear the machines, the beeping in the machine and the people talking around me. And, and I only specifically remember my stepmother was there. And I remember her saying something about how we should turn him towards the window and let him get some light or something to that effect. And having this realization that I couldn't move, that I couldn't see, and I don't know if I picked it up from the conversation, but that I was now responsive in trying my hardest in those few seconds to do anything to let people know that, hey, I'm here, you know, I'm here, I'm here, and not that not being able to happen. And then another time I remember was, and she tells this the story so much better because she was awake for all of it, but and the second time was Lisa was in the room and I could smell her perfume and she was talking and she put her finger in my hand and she said something to the effect that if, if you're in there, please respond. And I don't know if I had physical tears, but I was weeping because I wanted to make that connection desperately. And I squeezed with all of my might in, in, in my mind and in my heart. You know, I just, with everything I could, I just squeezed. And, you know, she says it was the faint, very, very faint, but she felt it. And I remember her dr head dropping on my chest and feeling that and her crying. And I was crying, you know, and because she indicated that she had felt that. And so it was very, I don't know if the word's encouraging, but it was a relief to me that I was, that was the only type of communication I had been able to make. Of course, the doctors didn't believe her when she told them that I had squeezed her finger because I had been non-responsive the whole time. That story, sometimes I look at it and I don't mean this in a selfish way. If it was mainly for me, 
because he was just laying there being taken care of. He had no clue. And he came back with no residual effects, you know? It wasn't like he wandered around for a year not knowing who he was. He didn't know who he was, really, when he woke up. He didn't know our two youngest children. He didn't know what year it was. He didn't know who was president. He couldn't read. He couldn't write. His left side was paralyzed. He didn't know he had had surgery. He thought he'd been in a car accident. We would tell him every hour that he had a stroke. And he every hour he was, what? Are you serious? Who said that? Who told you I had a stroke? I've been in a car accident. He didn't even know. And so a lot of times, especially in these days, I wonder how much of that was for me that there was, you know, and it puts it puts a whole different perspective on it because I spent many years thinking, Lord, you know, what did you teach him with that? What did you show him? What did you do in him? You know, and I think we all thought that when he came back, he was going to have this profound thing like you asked. What happened? But I wonder how much of it was for me. There, You know, and like I said about the layers, there's so many layers to that, too, that it was in that time that I learned that I could trust him. And that's huge because honestly, I never trusted God before. I didn't trust him to love me enough to do what was best for me. And that goes back to the father abandonment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that solidified your faith even more, even more to know. I mean, I would pray and say, and there was a point in time when he you know, before he woke up, when they were giving me the darkest news, he had to have a transfusion, and it was just terrible. And, you know, I would come in, and they had put the braces on his hands because his fingers were drawn up. And they put the braces on his feet because his feet had fallen. And they put him on an air mattress because there's no movement. And I was watching all these things progress and thinking, God, what are you doing? And I remember the day that I went home, I think it was a Wednesday evening, and I remember falling on the floor in front of our couch and telling God, really, for the first time ever in my life, I trust you. If you take him, I trust you. And really feeling it, I mean, that's a big thing. I mean, I don't know. Maybe other people don't struggle with that, but I think they do. Yeah, you know, and and I, it's really beautiful to hear you say that you were trusting whatever the outcome, whatever. not just your own agenda. No, I had yeah. spent every day on the floor in that same place begging, "Please let this be the day. Please let this be the day. Show me something. Show me a sign that he's going to be okay. That he's going to come out of this. That we're going to get this big, amazing miracle." But it wasn't until I reached that point where I said, you are God and I am not. And that doesn't mean that you don't care about me. Whatever you have, that's what's best for me. And that's what's best for my kids because I trust you. And I think it was the next day that she said, we're going to place the trach. And I said, no, please. One more time, just give him one more time to breathe on his own 
to turn the machine off, see how he does. She said, okay, I'll do it this way. I'll pull, we'll pull, we'll pull the tube tomorrow morning. And if he breathes on his own, we won't put a trach in. She said, but you need to prepare yourself. We sat in a dark waiting room. The surgeon, she held my hand while I cried. And I said, no, he's going to, he's going to breathe on his own. It's going to be okay. She said, you did hear the neurologist. He's got 3% brain functions. That's hit all of his involuntary motor functions. The, the neurologist told us later, he said, when we went back so he could sign papers to release him because he was in management at the railroad. And he said, I want to tell you this. He said, I walked in every day and looked at your wife and thought, is this the day I get to tell her that she's on her own, her and her kids? Is this the day? Because I really didn't expect you to make it from one day to the next. He said, because in a brainstem stroke, the brain detaches from the brainstem. And that's why you're brain well, dead. It, it can. But the brainstem stroke is one of the most dangerous strokes is what we were told. Because the brain stem controls all your involuntary functions. It controls your blood pressure. It controls your heart rate. Breathing, heart rate. Mm-hmm. And my stroke was large enough and in the right position to where from everything they could tell that it actually had detached from the brain itself. So nobody thought that there was going to be. Okay. Because that's never back, happened. You know? That doesn't but, That yeah. doesn't happen. You know, mm-hmm. that doesn't just heal. Once that happens, and the neurologist told us that, and so that's why everybody was so doom and gloom. They were like, this is... She doesn't get it. She doesn't know what this really means. So the next morning, I couldn't handle being in the room, so I was around the doorway, around the corner, and a friend of ours from church came, and when they pulled that tube out, he started coughing and yelling and asking for pizza and <laughs> how in the world am I in here? What in the world is going on? And I mean, he was breathing on his own and he was awake. The and whites was- of his eyes were blood red from the intensity of the stroke and he, but he was awake and he was alive and the road just, it it was just beginning. We didn't realize it, but it was just. It was and that just, was that was the third time, you know. I said that three times. The third time is is I remember hearing, you know, a guy yell at me because I'm imagining they're always yelling at me because they, they don't were know always if I can yelling. Hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I I heard this guy yelling, Mister Lashbrook, my name's so and so, and I'm gonna take this tube out of your mouth, you know. And in my mind, you know, the way I remember it, I suddenly saw before he took the tube out because I remember looking and he had his mask on and he had his hat on and, and, you know, leaning over the top of me. And when he pulled that tube out, I felt every bit of it. It was like sandpaper, you know, it just, Mm -hmm. it came all the way out. And that's, and as soon as it came out of my mouth, it felt like it was shredding the inside of my throat. And that's when I started yelling because it hurt, you know, and I was like, as soon as that thing was out of my mouth, I just started yelling, just, and that was nothing coherent, just ah. <laughs> <laughs> And the whole ICU just erupted in celebration. I mean, people were just hysterical over it that he was, because up to that point, there was no responses. You know, there was nothing. Yeah, right and up I, to the moment that the guy came and took the two out there, there had been nothing. They were only doing it to humor her so that they could go on with their plan, which was to put in the trach and move me into a long-term facility because they can't keep me in ICU for any longer. 
How long were you there? From the day of the surgery right, until he woke up. Right. Nine days. Nine days. Nine uh-huh. days in the ICU. A lifetime for you. Oh, it was a lifetime. It was the longest. It was nine years, it felt like. Mm-hmm. But then it, the m- more miraculous part of it was they said it would be six weeks recovery if everything went well. And they expected it did because it would because he was young. He was, you know, healthy otherwise, be alert and responsive and stuff. So we were excited to see him. And just the crazy moments that followed after that. I only wanted people around that were going to believe with me, you know, because I, you know, I'm only human. I was, <laughs> I was fearful. I was afraid. So and then after he woke up and they moved him to the heart rehab floor and he couldn't read, he couldn't write. The, the union rep from the railroad came in and said, you know what? We're going to, we're going to give him a job at the railroad. We're going to create something, janitor, something, because he's never going to go back to traffic control. He's, that's, he's, that's basically what I did is I, I was a yard master for anybody that knows what that is, but basically I controlled all of the, I prepared all the work that each crew was going to do each day. And then I controlled their movements throughout the yard and trains coming in and out of the yard. So it was very much traffic control and keeping track of a lot of things and safety, safety sensitive. Mm-hmm. And, and so they were like, well, he's back, but they were, I didn't know, even they know said, what year it was. So they're like, you know, he's never going to be mm-hmm. that back. You yeah. Know? He, he didn't know the two youngest kids. He just couldn't. How old were your kids at the time? Sophia was 16 and Luke was, what, 10? 12. 12 and Alec and Adria were? 8 and 7. No, they were younger than that because Adria was 9 when Journey was born. And that was three years later. So they, the two youngest ones were really little. They didn't get it at all. They they totally didn't get it. So you had the four kids at the time and then mm-hmm. you had a fifth one after that. Yes. Wow. Three years later, yes. Wow. We, we had a fourth one, <laughs> our fifth one. <laughs> But you know, my fortieth birthday present. <laughs> <laughs> but so we, you know, they they sent me to the recovery and started in on occupational therapy, and the guy would come in and try to get me to spell and try to get me to write, and he would just sit and sweat trying to spell tent. Yeah, I he remember just, him saying tent, and I'm just like, man, so I know, hard. I know this, you know, and. And Lisa had asked them, you know, when when will he be able to come home, you know, and. And so that, you know, they were very conservative because they hadn't expected me to make it this far. And so they said, well, maybe because the surgery had happened on October 7th. And they told her, well, he may be able to come home for a short visit on Christmas. So then the got through the, you know, I was getting better with the occupational therapy and then it was time for the actual physical therapy. And they, they expected that this would take, the physical therapy would take at least six months because I was, he at didn't even point. know he was paralyzed on his left side. He was a hazard. He, they had him fall risk and wouldn't let him out of the bed, had alarms on him and everything because he had no idea that he his left side did not work. So It's funny how the brain does you know, can do that. But, mm-hmm. Right. So they put me in physical therapy upstairs, and they were saying, well, you know, hopefully within six weeks. And, you know, I was trying to put those children's blocks of the different shapes into a hole with my left hand because the movement was coming back and man, how hard that was. And that was so frustrating, you know, because it's like my right hand, this is no problem. My left hand. And, but I was only there a week. I mean, that's how fast the recovery was Wow! And, wow. And within a week, you know, they called my wife up and they're like, 
there's nothing else we can do for him. You know, he could use a little strengthening on this side, but his balance is back, you know, and he's He's going up and downstairs. He's he's doing everything and his brain had completely come back and he was he was having physical problems like regulating his own temperature. He was freezing cold all the time and that how that happens with a stroke. And he would have like hunger, intense hunger like a grown man in tears because I couldn't get him a cheeseburger from McDonald's fast enough. <laughs> and I was like, okay, if this is the worst it is, I can handle that. Because so many nurses would tell me, they'd say, because I would find myself frustrated and think, well, why can't he remember? Why can't he read? Why can't he write? They said, write your name and eat your circles. And they said, read this. And he'd say, oh, I don't, I don't want to read right now. And come to find out, he couldn't read. He couldn't do math. He couldn't do anything. Kind of a funny story. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I don't want to forget this. And I did have a stroke, so I might. (laughs) He's pulling the card. Oh, (laughs) always. You were talking about the food. It's so funny because one day I remember I got a phone call from my brother. And this is when I was still in the heart recovery and doing the hypocrisy. And my brother says, oh, I heard you had a stroke. And I was still at that point. And I was like, what? And he's like. Yeah, you know, how you doing? And I said, uh, I'm fine, you know. And he was like, well, you're fine. And I said, yeah, I didn't have a stroke. And he said, uh, and he had been to the hospital and visited me several times. You know, it was just <laughs> once I was out of the coma thing, everybody went back home, yeah. you know, and went back to their lives. And, and so I was like, no. And he said, well, they said you're paralyzed on your left side, which I totally was. And I was like. No. I said, why, why are these people telling you this? I, I walked in and that so, room in the middle of this conversation. He's like, these people are crazy. Someone told Dana I had a stroke and that I'm paralyzed and everything. And I said, you are. You did. You did. So that was earlier in the day. And so that night, and like she said, with the body temperature regulation, I was calling the nurse. They were bringing me these heated blankets. And I mean, like every 10 minutes. I needed a, I wanted a new heated blanket. And finally the nurse got me up and walked me to her station and sat me down right next to where they kept the blankets warm and said, just grab your own blanket. You know, so <laughs> she had me kind of strapped in this chair where I wouldn't fall out because I was paralyzed on one side. But I, with that one hand, I'd give me a blanket. And so they finally made me go to bed that night and I was in bed and I was just starving, you know, and it's funny that. I don't know I have had a stroke and I don't have a left side, but the things that your mind can recall. And so I'm sitting there and I'm looking at the clock and it's like three in the morning and I just want a banana so bad. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm thinking who and Lisa had unplugged her phone because I wouldn't quit calling her all night. So she (laughs) my phone was plugged in. His phone had been unplugged unplugged and they would hide it from him and he would climb out of the bed. The alarms would go off and he would get the phone, (laughs) plug it back in because he wouldn't stop calling me every five minutes. I got to get out of here. And I'd say, (laughs) I have to sleep. I have little kids to take to school and I have a job. I have to sleep. You have to stop calling me. So it's three in the morning. I'm starving for a banana and I'm thinking, and you know, I don't know who the president is. I don't know what year it is. I don't know my children's names, but I'm thinking who would bring me a banana at three in the morning? <laughs> and I, and I worked for the railroad. I remembered the phone number to my desk at the railroad, you know, cause somebody else was there when I wasn't. Wow. You remember that? Yeah. Isn't it? Wow. It's crazy. It was not your kids names. No. And so yeah, I, I, so I, so I dial up, too. so I dial up the phone and Good I call Uber Eats didn't exist back then. right? <laughs> <laughs> and I call up and, and my coworker, you know, which 
Who thought that he was at death's door? Yeah, that I was in a coma and I was about to die at any moment, you know. And all of a sudden, I call him and and he answers the phone and I recognized his voice. I didn't recognize him, but I recognized Tim's voice. I said, Tim. He said, yeah. He said, this is Mark. And he goes, Mark? And I said, Mark Lashbrook. And he said, Mark? And I said, yeah. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, I need you to bring me a banana. <laughs> <laughs> he must have thought he was hallucinating. Or I was like, I he know he's know. awake. No, he couldn't have left his desk if he wanted to. It's too busy. But, yeah, but he, it was just, there's somebody who, besides bugging my wife, that I know is awake right now. So He would call the house and I would answer the phone and he'd say, I got to get out of here. I come and get me. I got to get out of here. And I would just, I would just sit on the phone and cry. I can't. Why is he like this? Lord, you let him wake up and look at him. He's a wreck. And my daughter, she would say, mom, hang up the phone. Tell him, tell him to stop calling. So she, she finally called the nurse's desk and said, my mom won't stop crying. My dad won't stop calling and he's crazy. Please take his phone. So we can sleep. <laughs> you know, she's 16 years old. I'm like, how can you do that? But So I had been in the physical therapy for a week, and they said, we can't explain any of this. We don't know how he came out of the coma. We don't know how it is that, you know, he went from being completely paralyzed to completely self-functioning within a week. And and so they said, we're, you know, we're going to discharge him. So they... I was discharged, and I don't remember the exact date, but I do remember the, I was trying to get back to work. And, you know, they had, I had recovered my senses enough that, that my job was actually going to let me come back as a yard master, you know, which wow. they said wouldn't happen. So I remember the last person that we had to go to to get a final release for work was the neurologist. And so he told us the story about the brainstem stroke and, and the detachment and how. And he gave us his file. He yeah. said, you take this. I yeah, made so all we, these copies. You take this. So we this. have all all the documentation to go with this. And I don't remember what the date was, but it was middle of November. I mean, this all, I was in a coma for nine days. And by the middle of November, I had been released from the hospital and was talking to the neurologist about going back to work, basically doing traffic control type of work for the railroad. And so he said, so I'm going to sign this release date to release you back to work. And I said, wait, wait, wait. And he said, what? And I said, can you make the release date for after Thanksgiving? Because the railroad will make me work Thanksgiving. You know what I mean? if, I, if I'm clear to come back to work, I'll end up working Thanksgiving. And so, and that's how quickly. Yeah. The recovery was. The recovery wow. was that you weren't supposed to be home for Christmas, but you were. I was supposed to be home for maybe a visit in Christmas. Yeah. Which and you was, were back ready for work before Thanksgiving. Wow. Yeah. And by April, I had been promoted. Uh, After to, of course so not only did I go back but you know you know it just and I can't help but just say you know it, it was miraculous the doctors called me right matter of fact they they asked us to come back to speak to all of their intensive care and their and their doctors and their the surgeons and surgeons and, and a large yeah. group and this is uh, St. Luke's Hospital, which is one of the most prominent heart hospitals in the Midwest area. Mm-hmm. And they had us come back. They said, because we don't ever see this happen. They said, our our people have never seen somebody in your situation or even close to your situation that comes back from this. And, and we we want you to come back and and tell people 
and well, talk to people about it. You guys have been together 33, 34 years since the beginning? Yeah. Minus 19, some 1986. pauses. January of 1986 is when we first met. In just a few sentences for people who, you know, are in the middle of the struggle and, you know, we know it ebbs and flows. We've been together a little bit. Yeah. And what, what advice would you have for people that are in the thick of it? Well, I actually thought of this okay. all day. I Go. was thinking, what, what if that is a question? Mm-hmm. And I would say, don't give up and don't be afraid to reach out for help. And I would say, don't be afraid to reach out to your pastor, to a counselor, to someone. Find someone to mentor you. Don't isolate. Don't say, you know, nobody understands. Nobody, you know, I'm the Lone Ranger. You're not. There's always hope. As long as you're still breathing, there's always hope. Invest in it because it's worth it. One of the things is I think people are, for lack of a better word, I feel like we're programmed. Nature versus nurture, all that type of thing. And we're all products of our environment. And unfortunately, in the society we live in today, everything is so disposable. And even people and People don't value people like they should. You know, there's materialism, whatever you want to blame it on. Uh, you look at divorce rates. You look at child abuse rate rates. You look at when you look at, you know, dis- the dysfunctionality of our society. It's amazing sometimes that we have any sane people at all, you know, because there are so many. If you were to actually take the statistics and look at, okay, here's the divorce rate. Here's the single father home rate. Here's the born out of wedlock rate. Here's the number of young girls that can expect to be sexually abused by the time they're at this age. This is the number of murders and violence that people are children are exposed to on the television set by the time they're such and such and and just all of these statistics we're all a product of that and so and this is something i've noticed as a pastor is the things that my generation struggled with when we were 16 17 year olds eight and nine year olds are facing it now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and there are things that my generation because of the internet and cell phones there's so many things to mention but School bullies are bad enough without cyberbullying. Mm-hmm. And there's things that children face now at such a young age that I never had to face. And, and we deal with all this in our ministry. And by the time if a child were to promote Sunday school and reaching children, it, it is a vital part because a lot of times by the time these children are 10 years old, 12 years old, and even younger, there are so many scars and wounds and knots to untangle. And so I guess what I'm getting at, when you come into a marriage, all of us, I think, and I use the word programming because it's on such a subconscious level, our faults and flaws. And we spoke a little bit about, you know, with my drug addiction, even though God delivered me from the craving and the actual use, I didn't recognize or know at all, all of my other problems that were contributing factors or results of being an addict. So when you come into a marriage, there are things about you that you don't know that are going to make having a relationship with another person difficult. And there's things about your spouse that you don't know that's going to make it. And so you have to know right off the bat, and this is that it's going to be work. And I know that's been said a lot. You know, marriage is a lot of work. But yeah, they're charming. They're beautiful. You love them and you marry them. But actually now having to 
intermingle two people into one unit. You know, the Bible says that the two shall become one. That's really, I feel like, what happens when it when it is done properly. I would not be able to function without my wife, you know, after all these years. Not like I do. You know, I mean, I wouldn't even imagine how that would work because we have become a unit to where our strengths and our weaknesses, we understand each other and each other's role and what part she's good at that she's better at than I am. And there's a lot of that. I guess the thing to me is, and I didn't consciously know this, but looking back, I see it, is to have a determination to say, and and this really goes against the grain of our society, is this is not something that, well, if it doesn't turn out well, I can just bail. I've never known a divorced couple ever, especially if they have children and children involved, that that was something that they just were over. If, if that makes sense. And you all are professionals mm-hmm. in this area, so maybe I'm wrong. But I've dealt with a lot of people and in 30 years of, of trying to be in ministry. And our society makes it so easy to divorce and gives people so many outs through divorce. And, and not saying that there's not reason to have divorce, but it's become so easy and become so common that I think people come away with this idea that, hey, I can do it. It costs a few hundred dollars, maybe in some instances, if both parties are uh, willing, you know, and we can just do this real quick. There's a connection there. There's part of your heart. There's heartbreak. There's emotionality and tied to that, that you're really, it is like the two shall become one. You're, you're shredding it. There's no nice, even cut. You know, you don't just say, oh, we're going to split and you make a nice clean. It, it's a, it's a tear and it leaves damage behind. And so, I feel like what people need to realize is when you go into marriage, you're flawed in ways that you don't even know deeper than you even possibly imagine. The other is flawed in ways deeper than you. And it's going to take a lot of work and that it divorce is not a simple solution. One thing that I've always determined, and we've had rough times and, 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 and very rough times, and she talked about some of the things, but. One of the things that I have always determined in my heart and mind is that I would never, when speaking to my wife, bring up the D word, that that was not, I just refuse to have that be an option and just have that determination and the maturity to say, if I'm mature enough to get married and make that choice, then I need to be determined enough to choose to stick it out and make it work and make it happen. And of course... Yeah, you know, I hate to add a bunch of qualifiers, but I think everybody knows there are certain things that are just deal breakers. Sure. You know, in, mm-hmm. in abusive situations and things like that. But just have that determination to say, I'm in and and we're gonna make this work. And start looking for solutions and start looking for ways to escape. We we absolutely agree with you that divorce has become more trivial in today's society. About fifteen Years ago, there was a divorce attorney in Chicago that put up a billboard that said, life is short to get a divorce. And on either side of that divorce billboard, there were pictures of scantily clad men and women. And Gene and I, we, we were in the beginning stages of our company and our, our practice. And, you know, we scraped up enough money to put up another billboard that said, life is short. Your marriage doesn't have to be. And, you know, we really, we really feel that. And I mean, this is our passion as far as working with couples and helping them get into those wounds that you're talking about and help heal them together. 
mm-hmm. right? Because that is the crux of that work, right? And we're talking about a lifetime of wounds that in becoming one, that is a, a, a very challenging and, you know, a calling really for each couple. It is. Right? It is. And it's not something you reach overnight. Mm-hmm. And especially in this day and age, like he was mentioning the statistics of, you know, the the exposure that children have younger and younger and younger. You're going to see marriages that are harder and harder and harder to mesh and to deal with mm-hmm. and to make it work and make it happen. It's, it's, I mean, I don't see the world getting better, you know, if right. we believe the Bible and what it, the you know how this whole thing ends eventually who knows when but i'm not a doomsday prophet or say you know it's gonna happen soon i just know that things aren't getting better you know and every couple that we've seen fight for it never regretted it oh yeah how can you regret it if you fight for it you know and i think there's been times we've had to fight for it to say everyone that's still together has had to fight for it. Yes. That you're mm-hmm. you're messed up and I'm broken, but we're you know what? We've we're gonna to, heal this and we're gonna yeah. learn from it too in the process. And, and learning right. about each other's right. wounds is that'll change it's how, your it's how life. we heal. Yep, it's how we heal. That'll change your life mm-hmm. to realize, you know, the the things that your partner your spouse has suffered through and experienced and what part of that makes them who they are today. You know, it helps you look at them differently. You know, how we become. Yes. So what is it that your partner does that, you know, they love you? This is going to sound maybe a little (laughs) bit silly, but everything I'm not easy to live with. And, and like I said, there are so many things that she's better at that I'm not. And she, even though it's not always comfortable and always easy, she always, what she does is she allows me to be me. I'm able to be a provider for my family. I'm able to be a protector for my family. I'm able to be a minister of the gospel and help other people and reach out because she does the things that facilitate that. You know, and I can talk about all kinds of little tiny things, you know, too, but I, I could just go on and on with that as far as the way she, she knows me way better than I know her. Just, you know, she'll pack my lunch a lot of times. I work nights, you know, so sometimes I tend to sleep too late because who wants to get up and go to bed in the middle of, or go to work in the middle of the night and she'll pack my lunch. And just the stuff that she packs in my lunch lets me know she's paid attention to what I like and what I don't like and what my favorite stuff is without me having to tell her. Does she pack a banana? She does. I do. Every night. Every <laughs> night. And it's weird because he just like is into eating bananas like in the last couple of years. But really it's about the work that she puts into our family. You know, we, we determined when we first got married that we wanted to be a single income home that, and you know, everybody else can make their choices the way they want, but that's what we wanted is I wanted her to be at home. I didn't want my kids going to daycare. I didn't want my kids going to nursery classes. I wanted the children to be raised by us with our values and, and, and us to be the main influence and, and loving her and trusting her. And and that's just what we wanted. And so, yeah, we lived in really rough parts of town. We've 
driven cars that people gave to us because we couldn't afford a car. You know, there was a lot of struggle that went along with making that determination and, and it's paid off in, in, in every which way, as far as I'm concerned, you know, for us. And so just the way that she loves and cares for the children and she does the same for me and she's just works tirelessly at it. She'd have it a lot easier if she had a career, truthfully. <laughs> but that's her, that's the investment she's made in this family uh, consistently and, and without complaint for, you know, 29 years now. What is it that he does lets you know that he loves you? I think the biggest thing that stands out, and I mean, I don't know. Do you want me to say the way he kisses me on the forehead? Do you want me to say the way he provides for us and always has, sometimes working two jobs? Do you want me to say the way he loves my children, our children? I mean, there's so many things you could say, and the list is all there. And, the, you know, like he said, the way he listens to me, the way he loves me, the way he knows the darkest parts of me, but it doesn't change the way he adores me, different things. But I think when you look at love, you say, how, what, what does he do that lets me know he loves me? When you look at the love of God and you're married to a man that mirrors that love, that he puts you first, that he lives a sacrificial life because it's what's best for you, it's what's best for your children, and of course it's what's best for him But as well. And it's not an easy thing, and it's not a perfect thing, and it's not an everyday thing. There are days that I go, what in the world? Do you even love me today? <laughs> but as a whole, you know, you look at the choices and you look at the things he could be doing and the paths that he could be going down. And, you know, I mean, you look at our families. There's no reason why I'm saying no reason why I should be saying there's no reason why he should still be sober and free of drugs and a hard worker and an honest man, you know, and just choosing to keep working for all that, to keep striving. Because there's lots of forks in the road. There's lots of places to get off, you know, lots of places to say, you know what, this is too hard. You expect too much. I can't do that, you know, but just choosing to say, nope, I have to. To love my wife like Christ loved the church. Oh, he loves the church. He loves me. But that qualifier that he puts, and he gave himself for it. I think that's when you know that your husband loves you, when he gives himself. Pastor Mark and Lisa, we want to thank you so much for being on Couple Synergy today. Thank you. You know, people have been sharing their stories since the beginning of time, too bond and to heal and to grow and we hope that by you guys sharing your story it's enriched your lives and the lives of our listeners oh, this has been great thank you very much yes thank you it's been an honor 
I want to thank all you listeners out there for listening to Couple Synergy. Our passion is in helping couples have happy and healthy relationships. And this podcast gives us a fun way, sometimes a, a more serious way, of bringing our knowledge and ex- expertise to our listeners. For all of you listening, please subscribe to our podcast and please leave us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or topic suggestions, please email us at contact at couplesynergy.com. For more information about Couple Synergy and our programs such as Relationship 101, the Couples Weekend Intensive, and our premier program called Couple to Couple, look us up online at couplesynergy.com. Until next time, synergize your life and synergize your love. You have been listening to Couple Synergy with Dr. Ray and Jean Kedkodian. Couple Synergy was recorded, edited, and produced by Dr. Ray and Jean Kedkodian. Voiceover and music entitled Breathe and Let Go was recorded and composed by Gina Gonzalez.